Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, June 23rd here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe as we continue to confront the coronavirus global pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is a really awesome interview I did earlier earlier today with the head men's basketball coach at Christopher Newport University, a, a Division Three power, John Krikorian. Uh, really, really interesting interview. Christopher Newport has been a tremendous program. They've been awesome during his 10 years there. They've made the tournament seven times, a couple Sweet 16s, and two runs to the Final Four. They're one of the, the best Division Three basketball programs on the East Coast and in the entire country, so really excited for everyone to hear that. Uh Coming up today on the recommendation portion of the podcast, I am starting the famous Jack McCollum book, Seven Seconds or Less, on the Phoenix Suns 2005-2006 season. Can't wait to get that started, so I'll be doing updates while I'm reading that podcast, little tidbits that I'm picking up. Uh, it's the first time I'm reading it, and I'm really excited about reading a such a foundational and important book in the NBA uh, book history. So really excited for that. So without further ado, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back, will be my interview recorded earlier today with the head men's basketball coach at Christopher Newport University, John Krikorian. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head men's basketball coach at Christopher Newport University, John Krikorian. Coach K studied at Penn, where he was a student assistant coach for Coach Steve Donahue, and after two years working as a consultant, he decided to pursue college coaching, starting as a graduate assistant at West Virginia Wesleyan, followed by stops as an assistant coach at the Merchant Marine Academy, UPenn, Lafayette, and Navy, before being named the head coach at Merchant Marine in 2006. In his four years at the helm, he had a 65-42 and record, led the Mariners to the second round of the NCAA tournament in 2010, and was named Landmark Conference Coach of the Year. In the summer of 2010, Coach K was hired at Christopher Newport, and in his 10 years guiding the captains, he has led the program to a 233-59 record, five conference titles, seven NCAA tournament appearances, including runs to the 2016 and 2019 Final Fours, and is the reigning five-time Capital Athletic Conference Coach of the Year. And after the run to the Final Four in 2016, he was named the National Division Three Coach of the Year. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Great, David. Uh, thanks for having me. For sure, Coach. So so kind of let's go back to the beginning. Can, can you kind of talk about just where you grew up and kind of how you first just started playing and fell in love with the game of basketball? Yeah, uh, I grew up in a, a town uh, just outside of Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, down the street from Holy Cross College uh, called Auburn, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, just an absolute great, great uh, place to grow up. Uh, I have friends that I started playing ball with at four or five years old, whether it was uh, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, everything that we played. And these are these guys are five years old we're so close today mm -hmm. uh, to give you an idea just the the you know the type of uh, town that I, that I was able to grow up in and um you know I came from a very competitive family uh, my mother grew up on a farm with with 10 siblings and so I had every weekend we had some sort of family outing and uh it was 
some competitive game on the on the court or field or whatever. So, um, and being the youngest of four, um, you know, I think that that competitive spirit was ingrained pretty early on. Uh, you know, uh, basketball was, you know, from from what I can remember, it just it just always loved it. It was always mm. my first love, and um, yeah, I remember playing bitty basketball at the Sacred Heart uh, Church in Wood. Any chance I had to play at a court about a mile from my house, I used to walk or ride my bike to it and just play pickup games all day and night when you could do that. And I kept the lights on. And, you know, it, it's just something that that I always, always loved. Uh, just so incredibly fortunate. Able to play in high school and have a good career. Uh, go on to Penn, uh, where I really thought I was going to play baseball, ironically. Okay. Um, and, and you know that was another one of my loves. Actually, I love baseball too. I did then uh, a great deal, but turns out that I was able to watch a JV basketball team under Coach Donahue. Uh, I, I had keys to the Palestra at 19 years old. Oh wow! I mean, that's you know it's just incredible. We could go in there, hit those games, um, Matt Maloney, Jerome Allen, you know, and seeing a packed palestra uh, there's just such a great energy around so it's interesting coaches you know you you mentioned that you were thinking about going to penn and, and playing baseball we kind of see now nowadays there's just the hyper specialization of athletes especially in high school a lot of guys only play one sport just what was it like as a multi-sport athlete in high school and, and kind of what was your recruiting process like not only maybe on the basketball side but also on the baseball side too yeah, you know, in, in in that era, I think more, much more than now, you know, you just played multiple sports. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whatever season it was, you played. And, um, you know, I also played soccer. I was mm-hmm. probably better at soccer than anything else. I, mean, I was <laughs> all state or something, but I, I didn't, I didn't have the same love as the other, the other two sports. But, um, yeah, I think it was just a different time. Uh, I thought it was really good and healthy, and you have a lot of reports coming out now that talk about, you know, how it's really maybe more beneficial mm-hmm. uh, when you get to be a college as- athlete that you played different sports, you were put in different situations, you used different muscles, um, you got a break from the grind of one sport, and, and so burnout uh, maybe was less. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of positives, but, you know, we also weren't, as good at our sport probably we weren't you know trained um in the details that that some of these players are now i mean they're so so gifted um and they have so many resources to get mm-hmm. you know infinitely better um so yeah i don't know if there's a right or wrong i, I love that it was right for me I, I loved playing all those sports and and you know i just love to compete so um you know i, I think there's some benefits there but you know, I, I certainly if there's a, a player we're recruiting today and he plays multiple sports, mm-hmm. I see that I see that as a positive, yeah. uh, not, a, not a negative. Yeah, I, I remember I went to a, a you know, a small ish high school here in New York City. And w- one of my favorite parts about playing multiple sports, I played basketball and baseball, was just the, like the guys who played on the basketball team were different than the guys who played on the baseball team. So it's like it was fun. And it also you got to hang out and interact with 
you know, different groups of people. You had to have different teammates, and that's such a big part of it too. It's like it's high school sports, it's fun, it's competitive, but also those are, as you said, you're you made your lifelong friends from the, the from from the kids you were playing sports with from a really young age too. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. It's definitely, you know, uh, different relationships and different experiences. Uh, they, they just build on your foundation. So you're at Penn, you know. Ivy League school, fantastic school. How did you go about managing, you know, the obviously the very rigorous academic part of your undergraduate experience while also pursuing playing basketball and playing on the junior varsity team? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I was so well prepared. Um, I'm telling you that, you know, Auburn uh, was a great place to grow up. Auburn High School prepared me extremely well. And, um, it, it was challenging, mm-hmm. um, but not overwhelming. And, you know, being on the JV team, probably not quite the same commitment. Um, so I was able to do that and do other things as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I, I just had a phenomenal experience. And then when I transitioned into coaching my yeah. senior year, um, you know, I got a little more taste of, you know, what the full-time deal was, you know, as a varsity athlete and, um, it was great. It was a great experience. And, and I have a lot of respect for these guys that, um, you know, at any school that are varsity athletes that are, you know, putting in the work and, and the commitment to be the best at what they do and mm-hmm. also um, are able to, to handle the rigors academically. It's it's not easy. Right. Yeah, 100%. So as as a senior, as, as as you mentioned, you transitioned into the coaching side of it as as a student assistant coach for the varsity team at Penn. At around that time, this it's super common at basically every college around the country, senior year, kind of everyone starts thinking about what am I doing next? And it's a lot of peer pressure sometimes if everyone's talking about it, everyone's asking you about what you're doing next. Kind of just at, at that point in your life, kind of what were you thinking about doing as a career and, and were you really thinking about pursuing coaching after college at that point? I did. I knew I wanted to coach mm-hmm. and I thought, I thought that my path would be to go into business, um, hopefully make a lot of money mm-hmm. and, uh, then retire early and coach, uh, or something like that. Okay. And, and, um, you know, when I got out of Penn and I went to work for a consulting firm, you know, I'm, I coached immediately. I coached, you know, Little League and mm-hmm. youth basketball. And, you know, I, I just was around it constantly. And I just, I was like, I can't wait. I, you know, I want to do this. I want to try to make a living out of this if I can. Um, and now's the time, right? I didn't have kids or I wasn't married. And I thought, well, if I'm going to try to do this, now's the time. And, uh, yeah, I'll never forget. I was up in Newark, New Jersey, during the uh, it would have been the 1998 Final Four, Utah, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and you know, at that age in my life, I didn't miss a minute of a big NCAA tournament game. Yeah, uh, never mind the championship, and I missed like the whole game because I was doing some PowerPoint presentation <laughs> for an insurance company that I had zero interest in doing. <laughs> Uh, I literally called up uh, Coach Donahue the next morning. I said, it's time. I'm done. What do you got? Help me out. Um, and within weeks, uh, he, had, he had helped me find this opportunity to drop everything, go to West Virginia, 
make three thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. and uh, be a grad assistant, and it's it's the best decision I've ever made. So just just for any listeners who who may not know, obviously, like with any job, each coach on the the coaching staff comes with different responsibilities with the title. So a head coach is responsible for certain things. Each assistant is responsible for others. Just for anyone who doesn't know what a graduate or or a GA is, can can you kind of just explain what that title means and and the responsibilities that go along with it at West Virginia Wesleyan? Yeah, it certainly means different things at a lot of different places. At at the Division II level, which is what West Virginia Wesleyan was, and and a lot of times at the Division III level – it means you're an assistant because uh, mm-hmm. like at that time, the only assistants on the staff were graduate assistants. It was myself and another guy, uh, Tim Narrow, and it was the two of us and we did everything, you know, so we did everything that any assistant coach in the country was doing. We just were called graduate assistants so they could pay mm-hmm. us less. <laughs> <laughs> so we were recruiting, we were scouting, we were, you know, you know, film and practice breakdown and mm. working the guys out and weight room and conditioning. I mean, you name it, uh, we were doing it. And, and so that was a great first experience for me because I got to do it all. Um, you know, nowadays in some of the big D1s, a graduate assistant, graduate assistants, you know, they're a lot of times tasked with a very specific responsibility, maybe on a big staff. Um, but at, at West Virginia Wesley, man, we did everything. It was right. great. So after your time at West Virginia Wesleyan was up, you you do you you were there for a, a, for two seasons. You go to the I was just there, yeah. One, sorry, yeah. I was actually you know, and, and I want to give props to Charlie Miller, who was the head coach, um, who taught me a great deal and, and and really empowered us to to have our hands in so many things. But that mm-hmm. literally just one season. Yeah, and so so after that one season, you go to the Merchant Marine Academy. And what a lot of people, you know, maybe don't realize is that when, when people think about the service academies, the, obviously the first thing that comes to mind is Army and Navy. And then maybe after a couple of seconds, they think of the Air Force. But people don't – or people – it doesn't come immediately to mind that the Merchant Marine Academy is also a service academy. So just what was that like, not only coaching at a service academy, but just also uh, being under uh, Billy Lange – who has gone on to be a very, very successful Division One basketball coach too? Yeah, I I had met uh, Billy through Coach Donahue um, maybe the summer prior, maybe one time, um, and just based on the recommendation um, and that one interaction, he hired me from West Virginia. I had never been on campus. We didn't meet about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally threw everything in my car, drove to New York, and we got started. <laughs> and uh, it was an awesome experience. It's really shaped my career. Um, number one, you know, all the things I learned from from Billy and all that he's done for me uh, in my career. And then two, being at a federal service academy. And, and you, we had tremendous leadership. There, Admiral Joe Stewart, who has since passed, was the superintendent uh, and just a first-class uh, leader and example. Um, Sue Peterson Lubo, the athletic director, first-class leader. 
and then from the top down, you had that type of environment, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly and those kids, and a, a whole different type of recruiting and national recruiting, right? And, um, you know, uh, high academic standards and uh, all that goes with being at a service academy was just so eye opening and was such a great experience. It really, really uh, jump started my career. Was there anything that that jumped out to you as as you mentioned West Virginia Wesleyan is a Division two school, Merchant Marine Academy is a Division three school? Was there anything that jumped out to you uh, immediately or just throughout your time at at Merchant Marine Academy that that really uh, showed or uh, just showed just the difference between Division two basketball and Division three basketball? And, and and just can you talk about if there's any similarities or differences that that you found at that time? Yeah. I- I don't draw a lot of, I mean, basketball is basketball. Right. And, you know, and you're recruiting uh, young men and their families and you're trying to, to fit a need and, and, you know, find the best student athletes that, that fit your school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you coach them up. And I, don't, I didn't really give that much thought, probably still haven't. Um, there's definitely differences between Division Two with scholarship uh, op- opportunities and um, the way those are packaged is so different mm-hmm. uh, than, than Division Three. Um, but at Merchant Marine Academy, that's a little unique too because um, it, there's no financial burden on right. on anyone that comes in there. You know, it's it's the commitment on the back end. So it's you know totally different, and the finances were a little different at Merchant Marine than than other Division Threes. So. After your time at Merchant Marine, which you you go back to your alma mater, Penn, and you're working for under Fran Dunphy, who is one of the best Ivy League basketball coaches ever. There, just what was it like, not only working and coaching now at your alma mater, but also learning from Coach Fran Dunphy? Yeah, I mean that was awesome. Uh, the chance to go back to my alma mater, um, be on the staff. Um, have great players to coach and learn from. Uh, and then to just be, you know, a totally different relationship with coach Dunphy for those two years. than I did as a, as a student mm-hmm. uh, and a student athlete, um, w- was just awesome. Um, I learned so much. Uh, I continue to learn from him every time I, I speak with him on the phone. Uh, he, he is a quintessential leader. Um, he is, first class and everything that he does uh treats people the right way uh and obviously he's a hell of a basketball coach what what so obviously i just like at penn penn comes with its own recruiting standards because you have to recruit kids to who are able to academically get into penn but but does that also provide on on the flip side is that also an advantage to being at school like penn because so many kids and so many families are interested in going to a school of the academic re- reputation of Penn? Oh, yeah. I mean, Penn is, it's, you know, it's the cream of the crop. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you got, you got it all, really. You got uh, an incredible academic uh, experience and reputation in a, in a world-class city. Philadelphia was a, was a great place to be, go to school, live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have the Pluster, one of the, greatest venues to play basketball right. anywhere in, in the country. So it's like the trifecta. Um, and then, yeah, you throw in a, some really, really 
tremendous people and and you can't go wrong so um other other than the you know some of the financial challenges for certain families Mm -hmm. um you know it's i don't know how you don't go there right (laughs) to be honest with you right uh i don't i don't know how i got to go there or how i got in there or you know um but but it happened and um i i just it's a special place it has been and, and will continue to be so the next stop on your journey, you decide to stay in Pennsylvania and you uh, go and become an assistant coach at Lafayette, working under another uh, Fran, another great coach, Fran O'Hanlon, who's been a longtime, very successful coach at Lafayette. Just now you're, 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 you've been working under Coach Billy Lange, Coach Fran Dunphy. Kind of, you're, you're now at, you're working for another third, super, super successful. Uh, division one head coach kind of how are all the lessons and and all the knowledge you're building all kind of blending together at this time yeah no it, it really is and and i couldn't have ever uh dreamed about having the opportunity to work for you know three guys that you know were so successful but also treated me so well mm-hmm. um and also had three very distinct personalities and strengths right. um, that, that I was able to take from. So, you know, I move on to Lafayette with Coach O, who I had known because he was an assistant at Penn when I was a student there. And I have the opportunity to go with him. And, you know, like his level of detail and knowledge uh, of the game of basketball is, you know, like genius. So right. um, th- there's... I learned a great deal from Billy uh, in all facets. Probably the biggest was about relationships, Um, relationships with your players and your staff and recruits and just, um, you know, the the passion of those relationships. And then with Coach Dunphy, there's this there's this great uh, sense of responsibility, personal responsibility and accountability that just flows through the program. There's expectations um, and he lives them and, and his teams do as well. Uh, and then with Coach O'Hanlon, um, it, there's this level of detail for the game of basketball that's just, you know, it's like you're going to school when you're working there for two years. Um, taking notes every day and, and trying to pick his brain about mm-hmm. what he saw and what he sees. Um, and so, yeah, what I learned from all three of those, those guys is just, um, you know, all become part now of my portfolio. Right. Um, and I'm able to kind of pick and choose, you know, at diff- different times, maybe what I need to, to lean on the most and then to have the ability to call them up Um you know, and pick their brains even now uh, it has been such a great resource. So after two years at Lafayette, you you coach Billy Lage. He gets the head coaching job at Navy, and you're working for him again. And this is now your second go around as an assistant coach at a service academy. Just what are just some of the the differences in just the different service academies? Because almost like any other school, they every school has its own culture and its own, I guess, just campus life and campus atmosphere and then did you also just have a different perspective on the service academy experience as this was your second time around yeah i mean i felt great about it um 
first of all, I mean, the United States Naval Academy is, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's the, I mean, it's just an incredible place and with incredible people. And uh, I mean, I loved every minute uh, of my time there and I learned so much uh, in my time there. And I, and I felt great about my contribution there too. And, and I think my time in Merchant Marine really helped me hit the ground running in Navy with the confidence. Um, and to be with Billy again, I knew how we were going to recruit, mm-hmm. um, how to organize our recruiting, you know, kind of what these players needed uh, on a personal level, what they were going through. I hadn't lived it, but I had been around enough players that had. And so, you know, I, I really felt like that was a great fit at that time. And, and I loved it. I mean, I, I loved every minute of it. And I, I hopefully was part of what, what helped us build and grow that to, um, you know, a really successful program. It, it kind of reminds me in a way of I had Yeshiva University's head coach, Coach Elliot Steinmetz, on a couple of months ago. And at Yeshiva, it, well, not a service academy, it, the curriculum is similar in a way because they, for the basketball players, they have their normal studies, they have their basketball time commitments, and then they also have the religious studies component to it. And at the service academies, you have your normal classes, basketball, and then the military training aspect of it. How did you guys, as coaches, uh, try to help you know work with the players on, on what you said on on what they needed? Because unlike other student athletes at other schools in your league, they they're really trying to balance three things on their plate while other student athletes at in the Patriot League are balancing two. Yeah, no question. They have it. They have it very. They have a very challenging workload to balance. I mean, it's it's not like anything that that you uh, you know. I don't know your background. But it's not like anything that I uh, have ever experienced or gone through, um, or most people. Um, and and what they accomplish in one day, uh, these midshipmen, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is more than most people accomplish in a week. Yeah, and and so. You know, a lot of people look at that and say, oh, man, that must be so hard. Um, Those guys are up against so many challenges. How can you possibly compete? Um, I always took the approach that that was our advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, Our advantage was that we had high achieving uh, young men in our program. And it was our responsibility as coaches to do everything we could to, to eliminate the distractions when they were actually on the court. Mm-hmm. And if we were able to do that, the, the, the selflessness with which they played, um, the willingness that they, they had to, to get after it uh, and sacrifice for each other. I mean, that's what the game of basketball is all about. Right. And those guys at, at Merchant Marine and the Navy that I was able to coach in those, in my time at both institutions, um, you know, it was awesome. I mean, it, it, it's it's why you coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think success can go hand in hand, um, even in those challenging environments, because you have people that understand it's maybe bigger than than them. Right. Um, and that's the hardest thing as a coach at a regular school to get your team to understand is that it's about the team. Yeah. It's not about the individual. Um, 
and it takes a lot of work to do that. And I think the best teams understand that. And I think that's your advantage at a place like Navy or Merchant Marine. So in the summer of 2010, you get hired at the Merchant, at Merchant Marine Academy to be the head coach. And, you know, just, just for a lot of people when, when they're transitioning jobs or when they get a promotion like this from going to assistant coach to head coach, you know, s- sometimes it creeps in, you know, kind of that, that, that self-talk of, am I ready for this? And just so, so, so how did you approach just that process of becoming a head coach now and all the responsibilities that, that come with it? And, and, and did you ever, you know, question if you were ready to take that step? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm more of the personality that I thought I was ready, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my head, oh, I got this, right. I'm ready. Um, and, and then I got my butt knocked down and then in my second year realized, oh, oh my God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I should have been smart enough to know what I didn't know, mm-hmm. but I had to just go through it. Right. Um, so, I mean, it was exciting for me. I had wanted to be a head coach. I never cared about the level. Still don't. Um, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to lead. I wanted to have that relationship that you have as a head coach to, to player, um, which is just a little bit different mm-hmm. than the assistant coach. Right. Um, I wanted to try things on the court uh, and in my program that, that I had been learning and studying from these guys and to put all these things together that I had learned. So I was, I couldn't wait. Um, and that first group at Merchant Marine, I, I, I feel bad for them because they had to endure <laughs> my, my, um, you know, me trying to figure all these things out in a short amount of time. I think my first day on the job was October 5th. Mm-hmm. So as a basketball coach, that's pretty late. Yeah. Uh, when you start practice 10 days later. Right, right. So, you know, that first group, I mean, they, <laughs> and, and, and it's cool because I have great relationships with a lot of those guys still to this day uh, because we just all went through it together. Yeah. And, and I was acting like I knew it all and I really didn't know squat. <laughs> and, uh, and they had to be thinking like, what is this dude doing? Um, but they didn't question. They just, they wanted to win. They put their heads down, and we had a really successful season mm-hmm. um, and with a lot of great memories. And um, you know, and then you have a little time to reflect, and you go, "Oh my! I wish you had done this differently. I should have done this differently. Right. What was I thinking? I, you know." Um, and and so you evolve, and and in year two, you know, we felt like we were moving forward. In reality, man, early in that year, we got knocked on our butts and and i questioned myself a great deal that season um but those guys responded and we ended up finishing strong and Mm -hmm. um and and that really built our success um you know which which you didn't see in wins and losses for a couple of years but but you saw it within the program really turn towards the end of that second year yeah um and and that was that was fun. That's the best part of coaching, I think, and being a head coach is is building something strong, building something that it, that is going to be successful, not just for a couple games or for you know one season, but building a program that um, you know I think your players really believe in, and your coaches, and um, 
you know, you feel like you can have lasting success. So that kind of brings me to my next question, Coach. So in the 2010 NCAA tournament, you guys make the second round before falling, if I remember correctly, my research to Franklin and Marshall, you get the head coaching job that, that summer at Christopher Newport University, which is a premier, awesome, well-established Division three basketball program. Kind of, as, as you just were, were talking about, kind of just like the building of the program is, is a lot of times the best part of coaching. How did you approach not just building the program, but maintaining it at Christopher Newport? Yeah, so it was a little different. Um, heading into a place like Christopher Newport where I had recruited Virginia, mm-hmm. um, but I was no I was no Virginian, you know, um, and, and nearly all the players – on our team are from Virginia. So they had had a lot of success, uh, at, at CNU before I arrived at coach Woolham, um, who was a great mentor to me and hired me. Uh, had just finished winning 500 games yeah. going to the NCAA tournament. So it was a little daunting to think here I'm going, you know, to a, a new place. I'm replacing a legend. He's going to be my boss. <laughs> um, how the heck is this going to work? Right. You know, um, but it was such, I could just tell that it was a great place. There was great vision. President Paul Tribble uh, had built something truly remarkable and special. People from, you know, young men, juniors, seniors in high school in Virginia wanted to go to Christopher Newport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, all right, let's, let's do it. It's totally, it's a totally different experience for me. Right. Um, and it was challenging, uh, the first couple of years as we figured out who, who's the right, you know, I knew who the right kind of fit at the academies was. I knew the right fit at Penn and Lafayette cause I went there and yeah. I knew those kind of places, you know, but here I am at a totally different, you now it's a regional school, who's the, who's the right fit here. And so it, it took kind of a year or two uh, to really figure that out. And again, along the way, those first couple of groups I had uh, had to endure a guy that, you know, was new mm-hmm. uh, and kind of figuring out on the fly. And, um, and they were, they were just awesome. I mean, they, they just, they gave me everything they had uh, and then some, and, and we were able to have some early success here, um, which I really think helped. Yeah. You know, as we then thought about, okay, we're able to continue the success that that had been here prior. Uh, we're able to keep the bar where it was without really lowering it. Now, can we take it to another level? Um, and that's so then we kind of shifted and aspired to to take another step. Um, unfortunately, we've we've been able to do a little of that. So one of the things you mentioned, Coach, that uh, Billy Lange kind of taught you and, and really by working for him, you, you really learned about was just how important just relationships are and relationships with, with players and your staff. One of the unique parts about Division Three basketball for anyone listening who may not know is that unlike Division One or Division Two with the scholarship uh, players, there are no off-season workouts where coaches can be on the court running them. Right, so your first day on the court with your guys is the first day of official practice, October fifteenth, and in that in between period from when 
they arrive on campus anywhere from you know the middle of August to the beginning of, of, of September to that first day of practice, you have limited on-court interaction with them. So kind of how did you go about establishing and building these uh, just relationships with the guys in your program when you don't have those on-court workouts and that extra time to spend with these guys? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, I think having a presence uh, is really, really important, uh, especially as we're holding it um, and, and having big classes. You know, we at that time we were bringing in pretty big freshman classes because we were still trying to, you know, figure things out and catch up. So, um, so how do we get to know these guys and, and get them in the program? Well, you know, one thing you can do, um, we'd have the guys over to the house and mm-hmm. have a meal. Um, I was an office guy, always was, still am. I mean, I just love being around Mm -hmm. you know if the guys came up to the office either me or one of my assistants was around so you know and and they started you know doing that more often and then you know i even did where i hired my freshman i think at one time i required the team i just said hey i want to see your face every day so you got to come up here every day. I just, I just want to see your face every day mm-hmm. or in your class, but you know, not, not coach, you know, like, you know, uh, if they had a specific question, but cared about them much more than just how they performed on the basketball. Right. Right. So and as a, res- as a resource, right. For sure. uh, and, I, and I thought that was really powerful. We haven't done the mandated thing, mm-hmm. uh, in a few years. Um, but I have a big class coming in this year. Who knows? I might, I might say, hey, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll be there. You know, especially now with COVID, and and you know, I might have to have office hours. Right. In the eye, you know, everybody care about each other. Uh, I think that goes a long way. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So as so as your the as the years going in, your first year, second year, you're building on the success at Newport. How are you going about? you know, building or just establishing your own uh, culture or just way of doing things? Because obviously coach CJ Willem was very, very successful, but he, but you're not him and, and he's not you. You're going to do things slightly differently. So, so how did you go about just kind of implementing the the things that you wanted to implement and, you know, the culture that, that you wanted to create at, at Christopher Newport? Yeah, I, th- I think what was great um, was that coach Willem and, and what made him, just so revered uh, is that he really, you know, his, his leadership style was to empower others. Mm-hmm. And so when he coached, he empowered his players. And as an athletic director, uh, he empowered me to do the things the way I thought that they should be done. He never came to practice. He never questioned what I you know, wanted to do. He really said, Hey, it's your program. Run it the way you, you, think is best um and at the same time you know the players although that there had been some success i think i do feel like they at that time felt that they wanted to push it to another level Mm -hmm. and so they were to their credit they were really wide open to all right hey we're going to try some different things it's not what you've done um but but it's what i know and and i've seen it work so this is what we're going to do and they bought in um, and, and 
you know, had Conley Taylor, all, all American, not gotten hurt in the last regular season game. I think we, we may have won the championship my very first year here. Uh, and in the second year, we go undefeated in the league mm-hmm. um, because these guys, with all their talent, uh, bought in. And it, it was awesome. So as so you're building, you're building, you're you're making the tournament, you're making the tournament. The 2015-2016 year comes around. Expectations, I'm I'm sure were high. As as you talked about learning from Coach Dunphy was it's important to set expectations of 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 the program. Just as you're approaching that year, kind of just what were you expecting, and and did you know that this could be the team that that could push the program to the next level and get to that final four? Well, well, honestly, we, we kind of did everything a year earlier than, than mm-hmm. we probably thought. So, I mean, the, the one thing in between that time is that we moved from the USA South Conference, uh, I guess it's in 2012 or 13, to the Capital Athletic Conference. Mm-hmm. That was a huge shift for us. I mean, we went from two straight years of championships in the USA South really having our niche. We felt really good about our, our, uh, our standing in within that group of schools. And then you come in the next day and you got Wesley who's got two pros in the lineup and is in the (laughs) top 20. Yeah. You got St. Mary's, uh, with a pro in the lineup and they're in the top 20. Uh, you got Mary Washington, who goes to the Elite Eight. Um, you got York, who had just come off a NCAA tournament run. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is now all these teams are in your conference. Right. And Marymount had been good, and, and Frostburg had had uh, some years. And and obviously Salisbury um, is in the league, too. Right. So you're, you're like jumping – immediately into a national conference and our first year in we finished fourth and then that the second year in we finished third uh and we lose at the buzzer with under a second to go at salisbury in the championship game Mm -hmm. brutal uh we won we won 20 games that year and we don't get into the ncaa tournament and that was I mean, that was as low, you know, it was a great season with a lot of great memories, but that team was good enough to to play in the NCAA tournament. And so now we're heading into the next season, mm-hmm. 15, 16. So expectations are, are there, but it's like also, man, we just need to get into the tournament. Right. <laughs> that's what these guys were thinking. Um, that's what we were all thinking. Like we got to make sure we get in this year. Yeah, um, we're not going to we're not going to leave it up to a committee. And I, I had just a great group, a competitive group, um, and you know we end up having a great run and winning the championship at the buzzer against Salisbury at home this time. And you know um, we were able to host the first couple rounds in, in that in that tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're playing NYU in the second round at home. Well, that game could have gone either way. Yeah. I mean, we were down most of that game. 
and somehow we end up winning by I think two points or something. Um, next thing you know, we're you know we're, we're heading to the final four. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, we're up in, at Oswego. We're flying up there, and you know we play Keens uh, Keens State out of New Hampshire in a close game, and then we. We're able to pull away from Worcester, one of the top five programs in Division Three, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, we'll go to the Final Four. I, I'm not sure we we really prepared for that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just a journey and a ride that we went on, and it kept going, and um, it was it was magical. So, skipping ahead a couple years now, 2018, 2019, you guys, I remember, I, I think we're. I think coming into that year, definitely in the preseason, I want to say top 20, if if I remember correctly, probably a bunch higher. That year, you guys were, were awesome again. And just like in 2016, for the Sweet 16, you guys are sent out of region, out of Virginia, and you go north again. And this time you're going up to Clinton, New York, to I played at Wesleyan in the NESCAC. You're going to Hamilton, a NESCAC rival of mine, and you have mash up against Hamilton in that game and it's a packed packed gym a packed environment they had i think a couple thousand people there and you guys are down 12 at the half what do you guys or just what do you remember about that halftime that kind of turned the tide to because you guys came out guns a blazing and really took control of that game right away in in the second half yeah so back up a second Mm -hmm. so Heading into 2018-19, we had come off you know, a pretty good season uh, the year before. We had gone to the tournament and, and won a first-round game and then lost to Franklin and Marshall. So, and, But we lost a lot of seniors. Mm-hmm. And um, So we're heading into 18-19, and, and Marcus Carter had been hurt. Yeah. And no one really knows what to expect. And the reason I know this is because it became like a little bit of a thing for the, the team. The preseason votes always come out. Yeah. And I think we got, if I'm not mistaken, like two or three, maybe four votes. Okay. So we were actually ranked so like 42nd or something okay. in the country. Um, nobody really gave us much thought or national attention that year. Um, but we knew we were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we knew it from, from jump. And these guys knew it. And it drove them, to be honest. So... That that was a really that was an incredible team, uh, 2018-19, and you know so we had the opportunity and as you said we, we make it all the way to um, to Hamilton and when we got that draw going up there with those teams, mm-hmm. well in Hamilton and we you know we were like man if we make it to the final four this year. We will have earned it, right? You yeah, know? it was a gauntlet. There, there's no, there was no. Um, well, man, they just had a good bracket or something. No, you know. Yeah. So, so we go up there and uh, we're down twelve at the half, as you said, and you know maybe this was something we learned in the final four a few years earlier, but we were tight because we knew we had a good team mm-hmm. and we knew what we were capable capable of, and. It was the worst half of basketball we had played all year. Yeah, it um, wasn't great. We, we, were, we were playing not to lose with some of my teams, and I think a lot of good teams. Like, um, 
you know, you got to be in a place where you're just playing. And we were not. We, we were totally caught up in expectations and we were questioning ourselves. And, and I looked around and I knew it just, it just something wasn't right. Like they were scared to lose. They yeah. Were, you guys figure it out. I said, it's not going to come from me. It's going to come from you. And I walked out. We gave them halftime. I think they spent another five to seven minutes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our freshmen who didn't play uh, spoke up. And, and whatever he said, as you saw, an entirely different team the second half. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was just awesome. It, it was a great environment. It was Hamilton had a terrific team, as you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and for us to be able to go and, and overcome those those things there, you know, it was a testament, you know, to our guys and, and to them really taking ownership of it at that point. Um, and just another example for me of that this is a player's game. Yeah, you know, uh, as coaches, and we want to, you know, at times, you know, we over things um but at the end of the day it's a player's game and yeah and uh they got to be in in their mind to perform and um you know they were able to get themselves there so it was all them so hamilton had a unique play play style they play very fast very much in transition five out the whole time and you are able to beat them and then your game the next day is against williams who Hamilton does, you know, played a lot of guards and sometimes had a no big guy lineup. Williams that year started four guys who were six five or taller and had six ten, six eight as their first two guys off the bench and played a very controlled, very uh methodical style of offense. How did you balance getting ready and, and kind of adjust so quickly from almost like one extreme to the next, where in in division three, the way the tournament works for anyone who doesn't know is you basically have the, the game is the next day and you have less than 24 hours to prep. Oh yeah. I mean, we, are, are you kidding? We, so that was what time did we end that game on Friday night? Yeah. You know, uh, nine, 10 o'clock. And then we got to get up the next day and prepare the team tell them what we're going to do. And, you know, this is where we had learned so many things. So we had stopped doing walkthroughs for years mm-hmm. on game days, um, shoot arounds. We had stopped doing that for years in terms of going into uh, the gym. So it allowed our guys a little extra sleep time, mm-hmm. um, which allowed our coaches a little more prep time. Right. Um, so that's something that we had done for years. Our conference, you know, this is where the transition to the capital was so important. Like there was nothing we've seen in the NCAA tournament that we hadn't seen in our own conference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Hamilton – as good as they were, they were very much like York. And so, you know, we had a game plan that we had already had to use for these teams. And Williams, I forget who it was, but they, they were very, very much like somebody in our, in our league that year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we watched them, as good as they were, we're like, man, we've, we played this game already. Mm-hmm. Like from, from a, from a scouting perspective. And so we were able to draw on that and, um, you know, we did, did a few unique things, uh, I thought defensively, but 
our guys had that confidence that, hey, we've already played these games. We know these teams. Um, they have good players, but but we're going to be able to execute our game plan. Um, and, and a couple of weaknesses that they had, we were able to take advantage of. And um, we felt way more confident going into Williams than I ever thought we would. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what our the preparation of our conference did for us. Right, right, 100%. And so after beating those two NESCAC powers, you're going back to the Final Four and another great run. And then the 2019-2020 season, you know, you guys were back in it, having a having a, another good, really good year. You guys get sent to Stevens Tech in, in the NSA tournament. You beat Colby, who was one of the best stories in college basketball, had a very potent offense. You guys beat them, and then you guys beat Nichols. And then you're going to the Sweet 16 to host Hobart. And all of a sudden, Coach, you know, it's almost like the world, you know, saw all this going on and said, not so fast. Kind of just in those weeks leading up to going to Stevens, had you ever heard of the coronavirus before? And and, and just were there any type of uh, precautions or discussions about precautions that you guys would potentially be making that weekend? No, I mean, not at all, really. Um you know, last season was just, oh, it's tough to have seen it end that way. And so yeah. many, so many people had, have had so many challenges, um, you know, but we had six seniors and, and our strength of our team was that we had six seniors. Uh, you don't get that very often. I've never had that many seniors. Mm-hmm. And we had a guy, uh, Luther Gibbs, who the prior two seasons, uh, and he's a dynamite player elite on ball defender terrific athlete came into his own this year but the prior two seasons he had broken bone heading into the ncaa tournament and missed both of them so you know like even even those other years where we felt like you know even the final four in 19 i think we're we would have been a much even better deeper team had luther been able to play Mm -hmm. against swarthmore but but he couldn't he had been hurt um and here it is here's his senior year and he's healthy and he's playing guys figured it out came together and we went on an incredible run in january we get sent up to stevens um which i know very well because at march marine we used to play him Mm -hmm. and we're matched up with kobe but now our guys are thinking nescac but they're not intimidated yeah because of what happened the year before right so they're like, all right, coach, what, what's the deal? And Colby was terrific, as yeah. you said. A great story, a great team, a potent offense. Um, but our, our guys played lights-out defense. I mean, just lights-out defense that day. And and we had some great contributions off the bench. Um, some some guys step up that hadn't done a whole lot to that point. And, and then we're heading into Nichols. And I'll be honest with in terms of the virus, it, it hadn't really – until just a few days prior, really, when Hopkins, I think, mm-hmm. said that they weren't going to allow fans, and then and then they, they, they had the issue with Yeshiva, um, I think, had a case on their campus. So just the week before, some of those things started to happen. Certain players weren't going to play. That's when it was like, whoa. This is kind of there's something going on here, mm-hmm. but but you know we went up to to New Jersey and we stayed in the hotel and you know there was 
a handful of people we saw on the streets wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't think much of it, to be honest with you. I mean, we toured the city and we, you know, um, did our thing. Nobody seemed to change their daily routine or their life or our team, uh, you know, uh, routine going out to eat and stuff like that. So, you know, but then you had the, the Hopkins thing and Amherst, boy, they didn't let fans in just before mm-hmm. the game. Yeah. And so we knew something was going on. And here's the next week. I mean, we win the game. The stars aligned. I mean, we were not due to host NCAA tournament this year. No. And now, all of a sudden, there's an upset. Hobart upsets Springfield. Yeah. So now, we're hosting Hobart. It's like, this is crazy. So, Sunday, where there's, I mean, the team, the program, the city, the campus, I mean, is electric that we're going to host the Sweet 16 game. Right by Monday, it's like we're going to sell it out. We got we're sold out Freeman Center. Mm-hmm. By Tuesday, it's parents only. <laughs> yeah, but by Wednesday, it's probably nobody in the in the gym, and we'll be lucky to play. But Hobart makes the trip. We practice on Thursday. They're in the middle of practice on Thursday, and all I'm thinking is. All right, we're not making it past this weekend, but it would be really cool to play this game. Right? Yeah, they're here. We're here. You know, let's at least play this game and then see what happens. Um, and then that night, Thursday afternoon, five o'clock during Hobart's practice is when uh, the NCAA shut it down, and that was it. Gone like that. Um, and and I feel really bad for my my seniors especially. Um, and for so many that, that didn't get the chance to, you know, to have their last season. But obviously it's much bigger than that, and there are people that have, have many more problems than not playing in a basketball game. Right. Uh, I understand that, but that, that's just, you know, that was our world at that time. Right, for sure. So, Coach, one of the things that makes you guys so just good and so dangerous in these tournament situations is that you guys play just awesome half court man to man defense and you guys are always at at the top or at, at the top or at the t- or towards the top in the country and, and a lot of the the defensive field goal stats and just a lot of, of the defensive stats in general just when when you're approaching the the defensive side of the court just you know what are some of your your defensive principles because there's a lot of ways to play defense like Tom Thibodeau is ice and send everything to the baseline that's great and then some teams say hey force middle so like so like what are some of the things that that you try to do uh, when you when you guys are putting in your basic shell drill at the beginning of the year, like like what are you instilling in your guys? Yeah, and I think this goes back to my time with Coach Duffy. But um, you know, we we put a great emphasis on being able to guard uh, guard your man. I mean, it, it's there's a lot of different ways to play defense. There's certainly a lot of teams that um, have, uh, um, but we from you know, honestly, I think it starts even before that. It starts in recruiting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we'll tell these really talented players, you know, like, hey, we'd love to have you, but understand if you don't defend your position, you're not going to play. Um, so so everybody that comes into our program understands this expectation. Um, and, and you better be able to guard your position. 
um, because it doesn't do us any good. I mean, if you score 20, but your guy scores 30, yeah, that's, you know, that's not going to lead to a lot of wins. So, you know, we had a great time on individual accountability and being able to defend uh, your position. And I, it sounds so simple. I mean, it really is. I mean, I wish I could give you some magic right. formula, but it's it's a, it's a commitment to that expectation uh, and our guys' willingness to do that because they see the the results that have worked. Um, and now, at this point, they hold themselves and each other accountable as much as I, I do anymore. Right. Um, whereas it used to be me, but... You know, we'll play a lot of one-on-one in practice. Um, we'll do full-court one-on-one. We'll do a number of situations where they have to go guard somebody on an island. Um, you know, because I think the belief is if you have to bring two people to the ball um, because you have to bring help, then you're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe against a weaker team, that other players not going to hurt you, but against the best teams that have five capable scorers on the court. Well, if you're constantly having to bring two players to one player, then you're going to get creamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's our just, we, it's just something we spend a lot of time in. We recruit players that are athletic enough to do it. Um, and then we, we do, if they're not, we, we work on them to develop them when they're here to be maybe smarter about their angles and their approach um, in terms of forcing their their player, the, the guy they're guarding, into a difficult shot. Um, is required because it certainly is, maybe on a screen or against a, a dynamite offensive player. Um, you know, it's then, and then it's how do you how do you help each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and then get back to that normal one-on-one situation. How can we help and then as quickly as possible get back to where we can guard somebody one-on-one? So um, so how do you – uh, So I was just going to say, like, how do you adjust when you have that dynamite offensive player? Because in, in the Capital League, there's tons of awesome uh-huh. offensive guys. And also in the tournament, you're playing awesome, awesome guys all the time. Obviously, you don't want to – you know, one thing we would do at Wesleyan was that it was always like this kind of battle of we would have our core defensive principles, but you don't want to completely change it all for one guy for one game because it's like, well, this is what we do and this is what we practice to do and what we like know how to do. You don't want to change everything for just one game, but it's kind of like this delicate balancing act of how do you change and adjust to this awesome, awesome player who a lot of times it may not matter what you do because they're still going to get up a, a good shot. Yeah, so a couple things. So um, Gordy Chesa, uh, who is NBA coach, longtime assistant for Jerry Sloan, um, you know, was scouting against Michael Jordan. Um, he and I got to know each other through a clinic in New York years ago, and we had stayed in touch. And he put a lot of thought, I am alone with players that you cannot go to. Mm-hmm. And he, he had an entire full, right? You can try to which is what we did um to the one six six we just didn't let him catch it mm-hmm. um we he has situations where maybe 
double team them, I assume you might have where you force that player one way versus the other, maybe to the baseline instead of the middle, maybe to the left hand instead of the right hand. Um, maybe you bring a trap after the player starts to dribble. So there's he's got like 10 different ways to guard great players. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that, you know, our, we have our core principles, um, but our players understand that, you know, we don't expect them to always be able to guard a great player one-on-one. We're mm-hmm. going to have a plan. We're going to have a plan for that great player. Gotcha. And it's our job as coaches to do enough scouting to know that, right, okay, this player we should be able to guard with our principles, and this player we can't. Right. Okay. We just can't. And so we're going to do this game plan. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the year, they've probably used five or six of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't always work. A lot of times <laughs> it works. I mean, Jared Wagner from York this year, I we tried everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we tried them all. Um, and we had a, very little success. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but... You know, I think that that's a thing about all that coaches have, right? Is we're going to be principled. We're going to do things the way we do. Um, I don't want to deviate from that. Uh, you have a lot of, I'd like to think we have very core principles, but we're very, we're very willing and our culture is very open to um, trying some things. Um, just because you get prolific players or you get mm-hmm. teams that are on a roll, a guy who gets hot. And, you know, I'd rather not just hope he misses. I'd rather, you know, make somebody else make right. a shot. Um, and so we, we've been about numbers, you know, the 14 years I've been a head coach, I've been, I've been about numbers since day one. And it's analytics now is, is this huge thing. Mm-hmm. And now there's so much data, you can get yourself confused. Right. Um, but if you can stay true to the data that, that you value, um, which we try to do, it, it, it can tell you a lot, right? You know, like, Hey, this team is very, very dependent upon this player. So we need to take this player out of the equation. Um, here's the two ways that we think we can do it. We'll start with this and then we'll make an adjustment if necessary. Right. And we're going to make these other guys beat us. Or if it's a system, Hey, they really, they score 40% of their points off of this action. We're going to take this action away. They'll see if they can beat us doing something else. Right. I mean, it's, it's that simple, but mm. obviously having all five guys on the court execute that is what is complex. Right. For sure. Um, and, you know, so it's, I don't know. We, we've just had guys that have bought in and, mm-hmm. and they've, they've really made the commitment to doing whatever it takes to be successful. And it's, it's really fun to be around those kind of guys. So sports is this copycat industry guys, you know, always want to copy what the most successful teams, most successful coaches are doing. And it's always, it's always interesting to me. Coach Bayheim at Syracuse has won, you know, 900 games or a thousand, depending on how you deal with his vacated wins or whatever. And he basically plays exclusively 2-3 zone, and he's been doing that his whole career. And he's been insanely successful, like 900,000 games, five Final Fours, a national championship. Just why don't you think more teams play zone now? Well, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think uh, 
know what you teach and teach what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's important that whatever system you put in, you you know it, you understand it, um, and that you believe in it. Uh, and probably most importantly, you have the personnel to to fit this system that you want to mm-hmm. implement. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I don't think there's only one way. That's kind of what you and we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of different ways to win in basketball. Right? Some teams press and they've won big. Some have played zone and won big. Some have changed defenses often and won big. Some play half court man to man like us and have won a lot of games. Um, some play a matchup zone right. and win a lot of games. I mean, I don't know that it really matters, but is that what's best for your players? And do do you, as the coach, have the technical uh, knowledge and ability to hold them accountable at a level that's going to help you um, have a unit that that is performing, doing those things at a high level? Can you teach it and teach it well? I mean, I think that matters way more than what the actual – X and O is gotcha. If that makes sense, for sure. Um, and so for us, defensively, we don't waver a whole lot in terms of our principles year to year. But offensively, we like to give our players a lot of freedom. So you have some teams that run the same offense every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times, every two or three years, we will completely change based on who we think the strengths uh, of our. What, are, what the strengths of our players are offensively, um, whether it may be five out, like a Hamilton, like you mm-hmm. or maybe it's three out, two in. A couple of years ago, we went three out, two in because we had a couple really talented interior players that we needed yeah. to have on the court. Um, you know, so I think the ability to adapt and adjust for some is good, but then others, like at Landry Kozmowski's, hey, this is what we do. This is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We're not going to make a whole lot of changes to it. Uh, we're just going to be better at what we do than, than you at what you do. And obviously he's had a lot of success. So right. um, I think it's so much more about leadership um, and, and knowing what you're going to teach uh, than, you know, like just getting some play off the Internet and thinking that's going to carry <laughs> it to a championship, you know. So, Coach, I, I appreciate all the time. As, as we wrap up here, I have five rapid fire questions before we end the podcast. All right. Number one, what is your favorite drill as a coach? Probably full court one-on-one. Okay. Do you have any pregame superstitions? I tend to drink a Diet Coke before every game. Okay, okay. Classic, great, great drink choice. Who's this, this, this one may be tough, but who is the best player you've ever coached against? during your time at Newport at Newport, mm. uh, Nick Laguerre from St. Mary's. Okay. Do you have any pet peeves as a coach? Bad body language. Okay. And last one is if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Offensive, uh, goaltending. Offensive goaltending, interesting. Well, Coach, I appreciate all the time. Uh, really appreciate it all. As we, as always on the Double Double, we give the last word to our guests. Is there anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of Newport News, Virginia? 
Uh, well, we're spiking here right now with this COVID. So my my uh, thoughts and prayers for for with all those suffering uh, through this, and it is my hope that we can get back on the the better side of this curve soon. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you having me, David. You, very uh, some very good questions and follow ups and. Uh, clearly you did your homework and so I, I appreciate that i appreciate that coach best of luck going forward and, and hopefully there'll be a season this year to to root for you know the christopher newport captains uh yes sir thanks david oh, have a good one Bye. that'll do it for this episode of the double double if you like this podcast you can find us on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast and you sub- subscribe rate and review five stars would be much much appreciated You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.